Hello, magical beings. Welcome back or welcome to the Find Your Awesome podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I'm your host. I'm an intuitive human design reader, a certified professional coach, and an instigator of joy. And today's conversation is a little different for us on the Find Your Awesome podcast, and I feel it's important. Before I introduce our guest, I want to look at this from a human design perspective. So we're going to look at the centers. There are nine centers in human design. I want to talk about the Ajna, which is the second from the top, and the throat, which is just beneath the Ajna. So if you have a defined Ajna, you've got opinions and you're here to share your opinions and debate is going to light you up. If you've got an open or undefined Ajna, debate is going to drain you and you're not really here to share your opinions. This does not mean that you are not intelligent. It doesn't mean that you don't have thoughts. It means that you can hold multiple ideas at once, that, that ideas and con concepts and opinions can flow through you. In a sense, you're more open-minded, not saying that people with a defined Ajna are closed-minded. Now, when it comes to the throat, if you've got a defined throat, you're here to speak your truth. If you've got an open throat or undefined throat, you're here to advocate for others. And with that, I introduce you to this week's guest, Jennifer Brown. She is a leading diversity and inclusion expert, a dynamic keynote speaker, a best-selling author, award-winning entrepreneur, and host of the Will to Change podcast, which uncovers true stories of diversity and inclusion. As the founder and president and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, Jennifer's workplace strategies have been employed by some of the world's top Fortune 500 companies and nonprofits, including Walmart, Microsoft, Starbucks, Toyota Financial Services, T-Mobile, and many others to help employees bring their full selves to work and feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And as always, go forth and be awesome. All right. So what we were talking about before we hit record, I am hearing that connection seems like a really big deal to you. Mm, connection. Yes. Um, well, what kind of world do we live in, right? We are polarized our income inequalities growing, um, our virtualness with each other is obviously here to stay and growing. And I think that, uh, and yet where we grow the most with each other is in that connectivity and in that, um, I call it creative abrasion when we're talking about perhaps like workplace encounters, but that beautiful one plus one equals three that happens when we have um, opportunities across difference, which is where I focus on. Um, and difference can mean anything. I mean, I, I relish those opportunities. I know perhaps some of us are scared and fearful of what we don't know and we avoid it. Um, and therefore we don't learn about it and we don't grow. So when you, when we talk about diversity, it is all about like, how can we put ourselves in, in connection and ideally, not just with those that look the same as us or those that share our background or identity lens, but ideally those who don't, because that is this, this opportunity just for 
self-reflection, growth, um, stepping out of our own lens and our own understanding of the world and stepping into somebody else's experience, which I can't imagine being afraid of that. It, it's something that I, I just, I live for that, you know, because I know that I'm, I'm stretching and, and it might be stretched in terms of my biases. It might be stretched in terms of my familiarity. Um, but, and yet it's just like one of the biggest opportunities of life. I love the phrase, the background and identity lens. Mm. That is such a beautiful way. Can you, can you just describe that a little more, please? Yeah. So we talk about lenses a lot in the, in the diversity and inclusion conversation. So they, and I love them. that you just adjusted your glasses as you said. That. I know. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Important. Yep. Lenses, literal and figurative. Um, so, so my lenses are how I grew up. I mean, they, for me, they are the lenses largely of privilege um, as, as I've come to understand the world. Right. And I've grown up and sort of reconciled, like, what was I born into? which I didn't have to earn or go find. Um, how do I walk through the world with relative safety? You know, how much education was I provided? Um, in what ways was my life easier? And by the way, I identify as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. And so I even see my membership in that community through the lens of privilege, the other privileges that I have, right? Because normally we don't think about being LGBTQ as a privilege, <laughs> I, I mean, I think we'd be, we'd be sort of laughing if we said that was true uh, because we are a marginalized community, you know, a community that doesn't walk through this world with safety, that doesn't come out at work. In fact, 50% of us are still closeted at work. Um, when we look at the trans community, the violence that's faced by members of, of our community is, is significant. Um, and is a real health crisis. But some of us in this community also have lenses of privilege. So, you know, I, I try to point out that, you know, we are these mixtures of our experiences and our identities, and they each kind of, you know, they come with a level of either needing support from others or, or the ability to provide support. And I see, I have a foot in each of those. You know, I, I always say as a woman, I need my male allies, as we call them, right? I need, a, I need male champions. You know, I need that power sharing that they can give me. Um, whether, you know, if they choose to give that, if they even know that they have it to give, which is a whole other question, if you'd like to go into that. Yeah, I do um, want to go yeah. into that. <laughs> you want to go in where you're going to go. <laughs> yeah. But then I can also, because of the way I look, we say, you know, the messenger is as important as the message. And in my my clients, law firms, executive teams, boards, um, sometimes I can say some things and be heard in a very unique way and perhaps in an easier way. Doesn't mean I'm enjoying it, trust me, because often I'm the only woman in the room and I'm sure I'm the only LGBT person in the room. And I'm, I'm scared, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling with how do my, what is my body telling me in terms of the stress of this situation right now? But then what we have to do is we've got to put ourselves in those situations over and over again so that we get more comfortable, right? Being the messenger. And we also should never acquiesce to fear. What's that? You know, what? No, like we're not, if we're not uncomfortable, we're not leading. So where I've come is, you know, how can I get in the room so that I can speak the truth so that I can challenge you know, somebody's stereotype or bias, either about me or somebody else, and I will pay less of a price for doing so than somebody else m might pay if they were faced with the same thing. 
And that to me feels like a really like proactive thing to do about the privileges that I was given. It feels like almost like a rebalancing of the universe, like because some of us are given so much more than others. So to me, you know, what goes down in history and in our legacy is like, what do we do with what we were given? Hmm. What do we do? Okay, so many different questions just came up. And now to remember them. (laughs) Just pick one. (laughs) Um, Okay, going back to just the word privilege. Mm. What's your definition of privilege? And then what's the opposite of privilege in your mind? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not asked that very often. Uh, Well, privilege unfortunately has been kind of weaponized. So I just want to say that up front and I'm, I'm actively trying to de-weaponize it and, and treat it as this, it's not only a neutral thing, but um, I define it as the ease, the relative ease that we may have walking through our lives compared to the relative difficulty that others may have from a safety perspective, from our uh, socioeconomic opportunities to our, you know, ability to feed ourselves and house ourselves and be heard in a room, our ability to see ourselves reflected in film and executive suites and, you know, all of those things. Um, so I, I would say that it's, I like to use other words besides privilege because I know that it's been weaponized. So I try to get creative. Um, and people will say, oh, but I worked hard for what I have and you're calling it privilege and you're somehow discounting it. And I, I just try to use myself as an example to answer that, you know, to just say, I used to not talk about the fact that I was a private school kid, a boarding school kid. Like I grew up so, so fortunate, so fortunate being poured into by two parents, married, not being the first person to go to college in my family. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, and as my mom always said, which has just recently been become so poignant to me, is to whom much is given, much is expected. And I, you know, when you hear these things from your parents, you're like, oh, whatever. Like, right? You're like rolling your eyes and you're like, but it's so, <laughs> like now I, I feel like I know what I need to apply it against. And that's, that's a huge connection for me. And honestly, that's only been in the last couple of years because I think we've, in the last couple of years, we've all been sort of called to really look at ourselves as instruments for change and where we fit in the mix. And the fact that we have to fit, it's just a question of where and finding our voice um, because we all know, I love this quote, and this is not answering your question, but I have this feeling you'll like it, is <laughs> uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I think was cre- was credited with the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. One of my absolute favorite quotes ever. And yet I think we've learned that it doesn't just bend. Actually, we have to bend it. And Ooh, when I say yeah. we, we all have to bend it. It's not just a foregone conclusion. And we've seen that in our government over the last couple of years. Like this is not preordained, you know, and progress for some of us, you know, that we can't count on it. You know, it's, we wiped our hands after gay marriage was achieved. And a lot of people in the LGBT community was like, well, I don't know what we're going to fight for now. And it was like amazing. First of all, that it was this total blindness to all the people who are hurting within that community who, you know, can't access the the privilege of marriage and and then some, but anyway, so, so the definite, definite privilege is ease, I think. And then the opposite of it is, 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 I guess a lack of ease, right? Which is, um, walking through your life, being a member of one or more 
traditionally marginalized identities. And um, Kimberly Crenshaw calls this intersectionality, which gave us a word for it, um, which was particular in her definition for women of color to to have a word that specifically speaks to multiple multiple intersecting identities that carry some level of stigma. Mm. And so I, I try to use that word. I talk about her work um, and then I define it for audiences and I use it as a way to talk about um, who is managing multiple levels of being underrepresented and the impact of that. And then in the workplace, when we're colleagues or friends or bosses and managers, whatever we are, church community members, school board members, neighbors, you know, then how do we, some of us with relatively more ease, heighten our awareness and knowledge about the fact that that experience is happening so close to us in our teams and in our friend groups and in our church communities. And what are we, what are we doing about it? Because the one thing I do know is we cannot leave the work to people who are experiencing the impact of identity. We just like, we can't. And, and this is why as an LGBTQ person, you know, straight allies have been just an enormous lift for our spirits. <laughs> Number one, right. Not feeling as alone, but you know, putting the onus for change on those that have the least voice makes no sense. It just makes no, it's, it's exhausting. Right. It's unhealthy. It's unfair. I mean, I could go on and on, but it's just, I think we'll look back at this moment, you know, and say, wow, you know, what was sort of flawed in our approach. Um, and this goes for the workplace too, because I think a lot of people are still sitting on the sidelines in the workplace thinking, oh, the diversity team will take care of that. Or, oh, our affinity group is championing that. So, and I think that implicit in that is, oh, I don't need to do any work on this on my own and for myself to figure out like, what am I doing about this? Not what's, what is somebody else doing that they're making me do, or I have to check a box or send everybody to unconscious bias training. And now I've done my, done my thing for diversity for the year. We have to change that. And I am, I'm trying to create a new way forward, but it's, um, and people are liking it, but it just means that everyone's going to need to do a lot more. <laughs> what's your vision? What happens in the new way forward? Oh gosh. Um, Many hands make lighter work. So if we all admit, acknowledge that work and change needs to happen, because we know it does, because when you stare at work, workforce demographics every day, like I do, the, the representation for women and people of color is in the teens and the single digits all across the C-suite, all across business. Like it is not sort of an aberration. So there is so much work to do. If you think that's a problem, if you don't think it's a problem, I kind of worry for you as a leader in the business world because markets are changing. The world is changing. Your talent demographics are changing. Like you cannot fall behind and not be a reflection of the world that you do business in. It's actually a liability. It's a risk. It's a reputational risk. It's a risk for you as a leader, as a manager, you know, so, so the house is on fire pretty much. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so I think that my vision then is that we all know there's a problem and then that we all, each of us knows what we can do to start to address it. And I think that I know we should know, and maybe you and I sitting here are like, what do you mean? You know, you need to be told what to do. It seems so intuitive, 
but it's really, as I've discovered, I don't think it's intuitive for people. I think they're stuck. They could be very well-meaning. They could be good-hearted. They could be progressive. They can have, oh, Jennifer, I have daughters. Like, of course I get what to do about like gender equity in my organization. And I will say, no, you don't. Like, Great that you have some sort of firsthand experience of being like loving a woman and a girl in your life and proximity to that. But uh, it's not enough to shift the inertia that, that keeps businesses in the stone ages um, and did you know, like, for example, org charts look the same today as they looked in 1920. We are literally still laboring in these very antiquated, hierarchical, bureaucratic environments. It's not good for any of us. It's not good for our creativity, but it's definitely not great for uh, building more inclusive workplaces. Okay, wait, but the same as 1920. That is mind blowing to me. I know. I can show you. My, um, I, I recommend everybody read the work of Aaron Dignan if you want to know more about this. Uh, Aaron has been on the podcast, my podcast, called The Will to Change, and he's like an organizational guru. And I, I remember his slide like it was yesterday that when he showed that, and he's all about the future of work and rebuilding more democratic workplaces, and that's where we're going. Um, you know, millennial Gen Y talent is now reaching 40 years old. Oh my gosh, I feel so old, like late thirties. And they mm -hmm. are the majority in the workplace and they are bringing a sea change of authenticity to the workplace, which is sometimes called entitlement. And I don't appreciate that. I prefer to think of it as bringing your fuller self to work and expecting it to be honored, expecting to be seen and heard, not expecting to be invisible. And expecting the company to really get inclusion and to do something real about it, not just talk about it or, God forbid, not talk about it at all, which actually some companies are totally silent on the matter. So wait, hold on a second. <laughs> I, I'm realizing that there are words that you're using, like inclusion. What does that mean? Oh, yeah. So you might have heard the words diversity and inclusion used together a lot um, in my circles. Uh, it's, it's a function in a company sometimes. So there's a diversity and inclusion team. There may also be a, a diversity and inclusion statement in a company's values, like the corporate value statement that may, you may hear it there. Um, and originally all of this kind came from affirmative action and it came from <laughs> lawsuits and, uh, just asked like the banking industry 25 years ago, you know, I, I think, and funny enough, they've gotten, they do the most around DNI from a spend perspective of a lot of the different industries because they've been so burned, but diversity is being asked to the dance and inclusion is being asked to dance. So being asked to the dance means in the workplace context or any context is, is getting people around the table that reflect our world. And it's counting the heads. Um, it's, it's the mix. Inclusion might be making the mix work. To quote my friend Tyrone, it is making it sing. Because inclusion and, and great outcomes don't just happen from diverse voices. And in fact, diverse voices can devolve into a mess and chaos if it's not managed for inclusion if it's if if there's not a energy around how are we interacting how is all those kinds of diversities being brought together to create a better outcome than we would have had if we'd had a homogeneous group so okay. inclusion is the how it's literally and and it, i like it because it's very um, it's very action oriented it's the how is a is a very productive place to sit around well how do i do this and 
what exactly do I do? And what does it have to do with leading and managing people and being a good colleague? And I mean, there's so much you can dive into there. And even just to take it a step further, we are also talking about belonging at work. So I would like, I defined a belonging as sort of the, the outcome of all this, the, what is achieved if diversity is brought to the dance, inclusion is being asked to dance. And the feeling of belonging then is that I was, I was included, I was asked to contribute, and my contributions were sought after, and they were valued. Because you can bring people to the table, but you can ignore them. Or you, or you bring them to the table and they get to speak, but nothing's done, you know, based on what's shared. So, so it's a whole, I think you've got to create the circumstances for input and inclusion. And that's where I think all of us have an opportunity to kind of monitor any situation we're in to make sure people are being heard, that interruptions aren't happening, that loud voices aren't dominating, that, you know, the right mixes around any table, any, and it doesn't matter what kind of organization, it can be a tiny startup and it can be um, a church board and it can be an education, like teachers at a school. Everybody is working on this right now. It's, it's amazing to me actually that it, it has crossed over as a topic into so many different domains and it's really it's actually really cool to see and the kids are driving it i'm sure bless them <laughs> what happens if we ignore this conversation uh well for an organization it's downright uh dangerous as i said because um you'll you might be able to get people in the door but you won't be able to keep them so people are getting smarter there's there's a lot more transparency there's a lot more expectation of my employer um, or my church or my school board, you know, to be seen and heard and to reflect the world that that institution functions in and often exists in service of. I mean, so, so the risk is, is being a mismatch with the community that you purport to serve or to hire from or to you know, succeed and make a lot of money with. Um, it can be commercial, it can be for-profit, non-profit, whatever. But, but this mirroring of your internal processes and protocols and the makeup of who you are is thought to need to match the external world. And um, if you don't do that, you can make costly mistakes. You can bring an ad to market that is full of stereotypes that, you know, are uninformed. You can make PR blunders. You can be called out in social media. You can have a Me Too moment. You can have um, people quitting in droves of one identity or several identities because it's just nothing is being done about, you know, there's no accountability. So anyway, it's just very, it's, it's very toxic when it's allowed to just roll unchecked and, and not a topic that's really invested in. And what's possible if we do have these conversations and we do move forward? Yeah, well, what's possible is the unleashing of the best talent of the best people. And I, I hate to say best people because somebody else says that. Ugh. I'm like, not what I mean. And best according to whom, right? It's not, it's not best people because I'm one of the best people. So like, that's my criteria. It's literally like to me, the measure of a healthy organization is the ability to attract and retain all kinds of voices and the success looks like that if you asked any one of those people, what's your experience like? And do you feel you can thrive here? And do you think that somebody of your identity can thrive here and succeed here? And those are the questions you ask when I can get my hands on like focus groups. Those are like the really juicy questions you ask 
a room full of, you know, women or women of color, you'll say, um, you know, what, what's your sense of your future here? And does it feel like there are double standards? And do you have role models? And do you feel somebody's looking out for your career and you're getting the guidance you need? You will hear all the things you need to hear in that. So um, in a perfect world, those focus groups, there would be no difference between the different audiences and their answers to those questions. Mm-hmm. And that, that would be that that would, and they're like, when, when do we know we've arrived with diversity and inclusion? I'm like, well, never in my lifetime. Cause it, I don't think we're even close when we, I still hear the things that I hear, you know, we, we haven't figured this out. Wait, what are you hearing? Yeah. Well, hmm. <laughs> just a couple examples. We don't need to go down the yeah, rabbit yeah. hole and make us too upset oh, right now. Yeah, I know. I know. I'll give you some, some, um, well, I just, I still hear from women that they're talked over. I still, I still hear that they feel they need to show up in a certain way. Like a woman said to me earlier this week at a law firm, she said, I, I'm very passionate and I'm, I'm, I'm opinionated. And I, I literally think about how I'm going to present that opinion to a male colleague very carefully before I open my mouth, you know, and I, I'm cognizant of not wanting to come across too strong. And so literally I will say, rather than saying something like, I have this great idea, I really think we should do it. I will say, um, so I had this thought and I wanted to run it by you and I wasn't sure what you would think. And maybe you've already had this idea. I mean, literally she, she like gave us this scenario with all of these qualifying weak words in it, like all of this. And I just was heartbroken. Yeah. And then that was a white woman. I mean, then I have women of color saying, you know, I, I, they have sort of a triple whammy happening around, well, I walk in the room and I can't hide my skin color. So all of that bias is triggered and happening and whatever, you know, and then I, I think about being a woman and all the other things that all women struggle with. And then maybe I'm LGBTQ as well. And I definitely, definitely am not going to talk about that. And that I think accounts for a lot of the people who are closeted in the workplace that we're also dealing with these other, other stigmas, maybe that we can't hide, you know, and managing all of that. And then we somehow can't, we just don't have the energy and, 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 sort of fortitude to, you know, be fully transparent. So when we say bring your full self to work, you know, we love to say that and it's really like romantic sounding, but it's much, much harder for some of us to do that than others in workplaces that, that where we don't see anyone that looks like us. Mm. Um, I think too, people will say, oh, we just noticed that like, we just lost our most senior out LGBT executive. What does that mean? Like paranoia just across the, like, you know, does that mean that people like me aren't supported here or, or a company will lose literally one of my clients lost four senior women of color within like six months. And it had such a ripple effect on people's morale and, and how well they could do at the company, you know, sharing that identity. And anyway, so you just hear a lot of um, stuff people are noticing, things they're hearing, things that they um, have to put up with. Um, ways they have to present themselves in order to have quote unquote executive presence, which has been normed around a certain very narrow definition that a lot of us don't fit into. And yet somehow we have to sort of emulate it and, you know, sort of downplay parts of who, who we natively might be and how we're most comfortable and most passionate and, you know, and we have to sort of tuck ourselves in and fit into this other norm lest we get bad performance feedback. Yeah. So 
going back to what you said about millennials, authenticity being so important. Right. And people are feeling like they can't be authentic. Right. And in fact, some of them are even going back in the closet. So they're out in school and then they come into the workplace and I'm not surprised because think about what you hear or don't hear and don't see every single day. So the message you get from that is my company doesn't care or my senior leaders never talk about this. And when they do, they stumble and bumble and it's awkward or whatever it is. Um, And then I don't see people that are out. So clearly like there's a fear, like a well-placed fear here. I often say LGBTQ people are canaries in the coal mine because it's not just about being closeted about sexual orientation. Honestly, we all have a closet. We have multiple closets. We have multiple ways we're closeted. I think when we don't bring our full selves to work, there's a lot we're hiding um, beneath the waterline of our iceberg, which is a model that we teach. Um, And yet what's so interesting about it is that if we aren't the change, I fear organizations are going to be way too slow to change. And so what my wish is that as we come into workplaces and we want to, we commit to bringing our authenticity, we've got to know that that's hard, but so important because we're the ones that are going to renormalize identities that have never been seen in the workplace. Like we're the ones. So when I, I think about, I can pass as heterosexual, nobody even guesses. And I'm not even, that's a whole other podcast. Like, you know, why, why do we stereotype people and think we know who they are and who they aren't? And, but I always come out on stages and I don't always feel safe and I don't always feel in the mood, but I do know that I have, I have a place on that platform. I'm not going to be hurt, you know, because I'm very secure because of all the things we talked about earlier. And I may shine a light for somebody that day. That's way more important than my own comfort. So I do think we, need, we can wait for organizations to change, but we also need to teach them how they need to change through our own authenticity. How did you get into this work? You mentioned before we hit record that you moved to New York City to become an opera singer. Yes, I know. So crazy. It's true. I didn't know anybody here. I came alone. <laughs> um, it was really miserable. And yet I was really excited to start grad school. I'd always been a singer. I'd always kind of done it as a hobby, but I think in my mid-20s, I thought to myself, I, I have to figure out the role of music in my life. Like it's such a big part of who I am and um, my gifts really that I wanted to bring. And so moved here, I got my master's and then um, your audience may not know this, but I had to get vocal surgery. So through the course of training, um, I had to just repeatedly get surgery because I kept injuring myself. And I so I literally lost my voice and um it was it was heartbreaking and i re- i recovered but you don't really you don't really recover full enough to do eight shows a week and sing arias all day long and travel internationally you just don't. wait so were you living your dream before the surgeries um, yeah i was on my way okay yeah i was on my way um yep and then So I reinvented i had to reinvent and i had to leave it behind and i still have some emotional responses to not being able to sing anymore. And it's even difficult for me to watch certain singers and, you know, just imagining myself and what might've been. Um, but I love what I do now. And I actually think my stage craft and all the amazing things you learn as a performer are hugely helpful for me now. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Fearlessness, resilience, creativity, um, no stage fright at all. I mean, I literally 
my friend says, it looks like I could take a nap on stage. It's so true. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of true. Um, I really relish it. I love it. It's comfortable for me. It's actually where I do my best thinking is kind of under the radar screen. Like I, I'm not, sorry, not under the radar with the spotlight on me is where I'm my most creative, I think. Um, so it's, it's, and audiences. I just love audiences and I love responding to what they want to know. Um, I love building trust with them. I love the challenge of doing that, particularly when an audience is, I don't know who's in the audience or perhaps when they're an audience that doesn't look like me. Um, so we're coming back to connection. Yeah, oh, totally. And I think that though singing a pretty song is a kind of connection, right? And, and that's profound. Um, but, but what I do now feels like this deep, it just feels like a whole different level. <clears throat> so you went, all right, so you're performing on stage. And mm -hmm. then you're having surgery mm -hmm. and what you just decided you needed to talk about diversity and inclusion. I know. Right. So the bridge from there was that uh, stage performers that I had in my life that had reinvented into other careers. They said, Hey, you know, you may, you may want to look into this whole field of leadership development, um, coaching, training. And I didn't know that existed. And I literally followed them to like different, you know, to learn about this other field. And I ended up getting a second master's degree at Fordham, not knowing a thing about the field, but just having this instinct that it would be something I would love and enjoy and be good at. And lo and behold, I, I loved it. And I ended up sort of in HR for a period of years, um, being sort of a director of training and development. And then, um, but not being really happy in the corporate space because I, I felt I was too creative and I wanted to color outside the lines and I really wanted to, I think I, my sort of change agent was birthed in that time. Um, I thought, boy, there's so much that's broken about the workplace and I, maybe I have something to say about that. And I didn't want to be anybody's employee. I really have this like issue with authority. <laughs> so I, I pushed into my own thing and I started my company and then I hired people and then we were leadership and team development originally, but then we sort of pivoted towards DNI when I realized that DNI is essentially a leadership conversation and it's essentially a change management discipline with a DNI lens over it. And um, being LGBTQ, I felt I had some personal experience that could inform my consulting. And one thing led to another. I wrote a couple books. I have seen a million classroom discussions about this, and I have learned from some of the best mentors. And um, now I guess I'm considered an expert, but I don't think the learning ever, ever slows down on this topic. And it's like one of those disciplines, like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And I, I welcome that. I think that's amazing. I love that, that, that my field is like that. All right. So it sounds like you, <clears throat> you carved your own path. Yeah, big time. <laughs> Did you decide that there was something missing? And yeah, like I, I guess what I'm feeling as you're talking, you haven't said this word or these words, but I'm feeling like you were pulled and you felt like, like all right, this is apparently <laughs> die. What I'm to do. <laughs> totally, it was something definitely took over the the wheel. Um, I think that's very true. I, I very early in my new field. I, I was very successful very quickly. And I think to me, I paid attention to that. I noticed 
I noticed like when I was the most junior person on a training team in corporate America, I noticed that I really wanted to be in the room and I, I actually wanted to be in the front of the room, <laughs> not in the back of the room, but in the front of the room. Um, and I, I just paid attention to where I was pulled. And I also paid a lot of attention to feedback I was getting about where my gifts were. We all have to do this. I think, I think other people see us before we see ourselves. And um, I paid a lot of attention to that because I couldn't see myself yet. And I think actually I was very late to the party and seeing myself as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as a, I think I got like big clients early on in my company um, that's, that threw everything to me and entrusted me with so much when I really technically didn't have a whole lot of experience. And I don't know why that is. I, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm not like going to say like, oh, I'm just like more, you know, gifted or talented in it. I don't know why. I think that it was meant to pull me along. Probably it was meant to be a train training wheels for me so that I would get ready for what was next, um, which would be, you know, facing down <laughs> executives about a really tough conversation that they don't want to be having. You know, and I had to build the stamina up. I had to build the chops up to do that. You know, that's not, and I still don't enjoy it. It's funny. I used to play tennis when I was a kid and my game would be horrible against people that were, I think, less, lower than my level. Um, I have the same experience. Yeah. It's interesting, right? So your game, you you definitely, the things you have to work really hard to do, that's when you grow the most. And I, so I complain about the difficult audiences, but I- I really, I know that I grow sort of exponentially, like rather than speaking to the choir, which I get to do all the time, that's like a big hug. You know, that's a, that's a keep going, Jennifer. Like we're going to fill your cup. We know that you go out and like have like tough conversations and we're just going to pour into you and like, thank you for everything you do. And we're going to just, we're behind you. Like we got you and just keep going. I hear that all the time. Just keep going. Please keep going. <laughs> so, <laughs> it feels to me so much like you've been training for this. Oh, for sure. So, you know, <laughs> going your time on the stage. So you're getting ready to be in the spotlight, experiencing like leading with your voice, changing lives, connecting with your voice to then, you know, when you first started your business, getting these huge clients because you needed if you needed somebody to show you who you are, to mm-hmm. show you what you're so good at, then these people could show you that because yeah. the world, like you are here to do what you're doing. For sure. So oh, the world very... was like, come on. We come on. You. And you know, since you're going to woo woo land, like yes, I think, I know we're so there, but I think my voice was taken from me for a reason. I was going to say, I literally, I, I don't think. Because intellectually, I mean, having met me here, like, you know, I'm a pretty ambitious person and I make it happen. Like I'm very achievement oriented and I was going to make that performing career happen, like no Mm -hmm. matter what. And I would have done it. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. And yet it wasn't what I was meant to do. So I wasn't listening to that (laughs) and I did not want to hear that. And yet something intervened to literally say, okay, you're not listening. So we're going to take it away from you. We are literally going to put you through this like humiliating, horrible, scary. We're going to bring you to your knees Mm -hmm. and we're going to make you feel like all is lost 
sort of from a purpose perspective, because I think about work as purpose, like it's not just a job, like it was, music is deeply, deeply in me, like deeply in like every cell of my being. So we're going to say to you, like, even though you can do this, it is not what you're supposed to be doing and you're not heeding this. So we're going to redirect you and we're going to deprive you of the very means that you've been using to, to as your currency. We're going to take yeah. that away. And then you are going to have to figure out what are you left with and what can you spin into something else? And it was never, ever the universe dropping me because I think that I was held the whole time through it. But that I, then it, the onus was on me to listen and just be like, okay, so what is next? <laughs> and I am so humble. I will start at the bottom again. And I will, that's exactly what I did. I had no job. I had no, I was temping. I was um, in my early thirties at zero again. And, um, and yet I just think, I just think my, the lesson is like, humble yourself, listen, pay attention all is never lost. You actually already have a lot of what you need. It just may not be what you think it, what you think it is. And, and nothing is ever in vain. So all the performance, like you said, just you, you never lose that is yours forever. And, and that's true about like my LGBTness is another thing, like the gifts of being in a community that has struggled so much to just exist is so beautiful. Like it has taught me the, the ability to speak for myself has come from a place of feeling silenced. Like, and I, I never would have grown in that way if I hadn't come out and realized, oh my goodness, like I am literally like setting sail into an ocean that has kind of no markers in it and no script and no, like, what does that mean for me as the woman in sort of this heteronormative world where so much of how we're defined is by men in our world? Like I'm departing all of that. Like it's not there for me. And so what, what is here for me? And that enormous, like just, I can't, I cannot overestimate um, the gifts of, of, of this sort of allegedly kind of marginalized identity for me I have had to find my voice. I've had to find out how to survive. I've had to figure out who my community is. And I've had to define, you know, who I would be in this world alone. And I have a great partner now, but it's very different. I think having a female partner, like there's, there is really no script. There's no gender roles in my relationship. Like we have to figure every day we figure it out. <laughs> so anyway, it's just been, um, um, it, and it's transformative to think about a, um, a, such a challenge as actually full of gifts. And, and when I teach LGBTQ leaders, because I get to do that in one of my clients, it is my favorite moment to basically get up there with a flip chart and pen in my hand and I say, what have you learned from being LGBTQ? What are the leadership competencies? What are the, the gifts of being who you are and, and what you've gained from this? And literally people are like, what is she saying? It's so unexpected. And it's so beautiful. I mean, I fill pages and pages with things, resilience, emotional intelligence, um, humility, bravery, courage, ch making change, um, seeing others as, as truly who they are. Like literally it just goes on and on. It's just this beautiful, profound moment. And so anyway, I, it's none of it is an accident. It's, it's beautiful. And I just would hope uh, those who are struggling to feel like, where am I going? And what is, what is the point of this? And what happened to me and why? And, 
you know, there is, there is a path that you're meant to follow with everything that you're contending with now or you have in the past. And there are people that need you to tell your story so that they can be transformed. And um, my wish is too that workplaces are full of stories that haven't been told so that it, it, it sends this real message and a real physical role model to people who are like, well, I can't lead. I can't get there because of this. Like I have to hide this. I have to be ashamed of this. Like we got to change it. And you're here to lead the way. Indeed. I guess so. (laughs) I'm so loving this, Jennifer, because I'm loving that like the universe was like, you need to be in the LGBTQ community. Yes. Because you need to be in a community that doesn't have a loud enough voice. You need to use your voice. You're really good at that singing thing, but not like that. <laughs> no, no, no. Come over here. Yeah. <laughs> that was really great practice. Yeah. And now. <laughs> like, no, 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 really, you're done. Okay. All right. <laughs> Seriously, girl, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> exactly. Seriously, I'm taking it away. Yeah. Like, it you're, you're in timeout. Like, not. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. It's so beautiful when you think about it that way. And, I, I say in my keynotes, I was meant to use my voice, just not as a singer. Mm-hmm. After I tell that story and people are like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I hope they reflect in their own life, sort of, you know, is there a tweak or a big change that you could make in your life where, whereby you would feel more aligned, that you were, felt you really were having the impact that you are here to have? Because I believe all of us are here to make an impact. And, um, and yet we get waylaid by the shoulds or the circumstances or the shame, you know, and I had all the, I had all that stuff. Um, you know, I also am a product of a pretty conservative family and, you know, coming out was risky. Um, and the love of love of loved ones sort of feeling like that was a potential loss. You know, that's, that's something very profound that the community goes through. And, and how do you get through that? Like, how do you learn to love and trust and um, when that is on the table? How old were you when you came out? I came out when I was 22. What was it like? Um, you know, I, I, I think I'm, I've, I've had a sense always, I'm very lucky to say I need to honor my heart. And my heart told me I had feelings for somebody of the same gender who, by the way, now is a transgender man. <laughs> um, so that, that's a really interesting twist to my story. But my first love uh, was a, a, a person in college. And, and um, I went home and told my one parent, one parent, we agreed not to tell the other parent. And then a couple of years went by, I told the other parent. Um, he was devastated. Um, they're of a different generation, uh, but they loved me and uh, so I have to say supported me and have evolved in their own journey, I think, towards understanding. And I've been patient, incredibly patient and loving through that journey. Um, I've certainly given them two, two of my books to read. <laughs> so I'm like, read this. Uh, and so it's, um, I, you know, to go back to woo-woo, I also think we're born into the family that we need. It may Mm -hmm. not be the family that I shares my views, but in maybe this is just me trying to make peace with different views, but it shaped me. They had a job to do to kind of shape that next generation. And I feel very much like I was the recipient of that for a reason. 
Um, I was a competitive kid. They put me in every competition. They showed me the world. They made sure I was polished. My mom wanted me to be Miss America, just to give you an idea of sort of the regime, the, the, um, the plan I was on. And it was intense. It was really intense. I mean, it was, it was, I was first child of very, very, very ambitious, serious parents. Um, so while my voice may not have been heard in many ways in my childhood, um, I believe it forged me in order to have the stamina for running a company, which is no joke. <laughs> And using my voice in the way that I am and, and that ambition and that focus and that resilience and the toughness and, and yes, the confidence too, because I, I did have parents who were like, you will get on that stage and you will, you will do this well. And I, I actually really liked it. I actually liked having to perform and it was, so it was a good match in, in many of those ways. And, um, my communication, my ability to write, my ability to speak and communicate um, is a product of the educational opportunities that I was given, right? We had to write endlessly and be corrected. And all of that is in the books now. Like it's just this, so it, it all was there so that I would like gladly, I am now applying it. I think where I should, it would be a waste if it were applying somewhere else. Um, but you know, where, where I wasn't tackling like the profound things that I'm tackling now, but it's it, none of it goes to waste. It's like the, it's like, a turkey dinner, like <laughs> it was like things to do with all the, all the parts of our lives. Like, it's just a matter of like, you, you may not know what the use is for some, a piece yet. Right. And I think I'm probably still discovering the older I get, the more I'm like, wow, I have this in me too. And I have this in me. And maybe this is what I'm supposed to do with that. You know, it's still, it's still emerging from behind the clouds to me. And I may be it's very interesting, but, but nothing's wasted. I, I do think that the universe gives us all the stuff we need. <laughs> I've got one more question. We have to wrap this up and I've loved this conversation. Um, if you had a billboard, hmm. what, and you can put it anywhere you want, you could, but not in Vermont. There are no billboards in Vermont. Oh, that's right. They're all the cute little signs. Yeah. That look all, so like little cottages and things. Yeah. So if you had a billboard, what would it say? Ooh, it would say you are enough or you are everything. Ooh. I also love you contain multitudes. That's beautiful. We do. We do. And I, I just would wish that for folks who are struggling, been there in some ways many, and not in many ways, but I just, I feel and I take with me everything I hear and um, hopefully I can be that vessel that I just think in ourselves, the, the love of ourselves and our journey and our families, even if we do disagree, um, that is the grace is the most beautiful thing that we can have for ourselves and others. And if we operate from that place, I think honestly, the world would be, the world would be better. We're struggling right now. So uh, I'd also say, gosh, there's so many things I'd put on that billboard. I'd say step up. I'd say, I'd say, use your voice. I'd say, don't remember the arc of the moral universe is long. You know, it doesn't just bend towards justice. We have to bend it. And I might say, what are you doing to bend it today? I like that. And mm -hmm. although we're struggling right now, you just said that there are gifts in a struggle. There are, you're right. And there, there are so many gifts so in this struggle. 
oh, we've all become, so many of us have become politically active as a result of mm -hmm. the last couple of years. I think a lot of us, if you're white women, you, you have looked at yourself and said, now I understand like why women of color might not feel comfortable at the women's march. You know, that I remember learning that and hearing that and saying, oh my goodness, like that's a thing that's real. And I didn't know that. And I need to know that. And I need to do something about it. So just this awakening is so powerful. So honestly, everything that's happened is a gift. And I know it's been painful, but wow, have we felt sort of called in a different way to create the world that would allow all of us to thrive and maybe be a better world for our younger selves. Like if we had only had the kind of love in our families, if we only had seen ourselves in our schools, if we'd only been understood for all of who we are and celebrated, I mean, we'd have a lot more productivity, happiness. Uh, we wouldn't be self-medicating to the extent we are. We'd have a lot less probably mental health challenges, which are, which we see so much of, particularly in the younger generation. So um, we, we have a lot to undo and it, that needs to be rebuilt. Our history as a country needs to be better understood in truthful terms versus what we've been told in school. <laughs> That's my big thing right now. I, I'm just flabbergasted at what we've been taught about our history and how certain people have not been honored and spoken the truth about and how we just literally continue to kind of perpetuate a lot of the pain because we really haven't done that truth truthful work. Is that going to be another book? I don't know. Oh boy. I'm not a historian. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I could ever be an authority on that, but I, but I'm a student of it and I can certainly spread a message about the need to, to do our work, which we haven't done in, a, in the U S and I, I believe we're going to be destined to repeat everything over and over until we dismantle some things. And I'm still figuring out what needs to get dismantled. How do I, how do, how do we dismantle it? Um, and then what is rebuilt in its place and is dismantling it the only answer? I mean, like, is it an incremental solution? Is it a radical solution? Um, it's sort of, it reminds me of, um, like Zappos, the, the, the shoes company literally became like complete democracy, meaning like they got rid of job titles and <laughs> org charts and bosses and literally you can kind of float around and work on whatever you want to. Like, is that the future? Like, do we really need to rip it apart completely? And then do we need to find a new way? And I know many people in my community would say yes, because all, otherwise all we're doing is incremental changes. And all we're doing is we are, some of us are still adapting to a system that wasn't built by us or for us. And so as such, we're just gonna to continue to sort of throw ourselves against the screen like a moth and it only hurts us, right? And so, but I don't, being somebody who's also a consultant, we talk about you gotta meet the client where they're at and you've gotta get people on board and inclusion has to include everybody. And you know, we have to think about how can we work with power to create change at the same time challenging power to like take a hard look at itself. So it's a really, it's such an interesting balancing act. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what that next book's going to be about. I'm so torn. There's so many things I want to write about. <laughs> well, let's wrap, um, wrap up with what your current books are called, where people can get them. 
how people can work with you, listen to you, get you to keynote at their event, mm. um, your podcast, all of it, all, all the, the things, things, please, all the things. Okay, quickly. First book was called Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace, and the Will to Change. 2017. And then most recently, two months ago or three months ago, um, I released How to Be an Inclusive Leader. Um, I would think of the first book as the why and the second book as the how, just to give you a clue about where to start if you want to start reading. My podcast is called The Will to Change. Um, I'm on social all the time. So Twitter is at Jennifer Brown. Instagram is at Jennifer Brown Speaks. Um, Jennifer Brown Consulting is LinkedIn and Facebook. And if you're interested in our keynoting or our consulting for your organization, I have this tremendous team of 25 people, believe it or not. Um, I have some incredible consultants who do work with some of the biggest companies in the world and some of the smallest as well. We sort of work with all different sizes. So send us an email at, at uh, info at jenniferbrownconsulting.com and let us know what's on your mind. And we'd love to hear from you and support you. Awesome. You are such a beautiful human and I've, your words, your, your heart comes out through your words. And I really appreciate this time. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please head over to Facebook and join the group Find Your Awesome with Kelsey Abbott. It's free. And if you want more than that, go to my website, kelseyabbott.com. And there you can sign up for my newsletter and get a series of free guided meditations. And I would really appreciate it if you could head over to the podcast app and leave a review of the Find Your Awesome podcast. Your reviews help other people learn about this podcast. Thank you so much. That's all I've got for you, friends. Go forth and be awesome.